The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. And I've been calling it Taking Spiritual Inventory. So if you haven't been here for the previous four or five lessons, we do have it available on video. And it would be a good idea if you want to continue and fully understand the foundation that's been laid. You can catch up and go back and watch those. Take notes. um, Because this is a series and each one follows another that came before it. So today's sermon, if this is the only sermon you're hearing in the series, you might have questions that are unanswered that maybe were answered in a previous sermon, but that's okay. Also trying to have the sermons in the series stand on their own as well. So today is taking spiritual inventory. The first four in the series that we did were taking spiritual inventory to answer the question, are you saved? Examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Uh, And that was a, a command of 2 Corinthians 13. And then we transitioned after finishing that, we transitioned beginning last week And we'll do uh, a few more on spiritual inventory. And the question we're seeking to answer is, are you growing spiritually? Now that we have settled the issue, hopefully, that yes, I am a Christian, by definition, as laid out in Scripture, as confirmed in my heart through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the question now is, am I growing? Am I growing as a Christian? Am I maturing? Last week, I asked some questions, some diagnostic questions, and I got some feedback which is always good. I gave a 15-question multiple-choice, no, sorry, true and false quiz orally here, 15 questions. Just so you know, for the record, there is no perfect quiz that's ever been crafted by man. So anyway, (laughs) there was some ambiguity, and I had people asking me questions, and was that really the answer? So I just wanted to comment on two of them. One of the questions was, can a Christian, you, can any Christian all pray to, or is any is every Christian vulnerable to any sin? Is any Christian vulnerable to any sin? Another way to phrase it is, can a Christian commit any conceivable sin? Can any Christian commit any conceivable sin? Uh, I actually said the answer was true, and then later on there were others who inquired, and some who even took me to task, said, bring it on. <laughs> and we had a good discussion, and they made some good points. Because uh, there were some assumptions that I was making in that question. I was assuming that you truly were a Christian, and if you're truly a Christian, you have eternal life, and you can't lose your salvation. So the question was, if you're truly a Christian, and we know that you can't lose your salvation, uh, then is it true that any Christian could commit any conceivable sin that is possible for a Christian to commit? Because there are some sins that a Christian cannot commit. For example, the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Matthew chapter 12. A true born-again believer can't commit that sin Um, or any sin-related apostasy that leads to uh, eternal death and hell. A Christian can't commit that sin. You are impervious to that sin because you've been born again and you have security for all eternity in the very palm of Jesus Christ and his grace. So hopefully that clarifies that question. Uh, The other one that stumbled people or threw people off kilter, and I knew it would. It was planned. It was a strategy. Uh, When I I asked the question, are you a better person as a Christian? Are you a better person today than you were five years ago? Or another way to say that is, as you're getting older as a Christian and as time goes by, are you becoming a better person? And some were inclined to say, yes, with time, I'm becoming a better person. And then I spoiled your lunch and I said, no, that is not true. You're not a better person today as a Christian than you were three years ago or five years ago as a Christian. And I, I did make some comments to elaborate on that, to try to explain that. And yet, uh, some people were still befuddled by that, bothered by that. That's okay. Uh, I think we'll address it even more today and in the next couple of weeks. That phraseology, uh, or when Pastor Cliff said, as a Christian, you are not a better person today than you were three years ago as a Christian, or if you became a Christian 10 years ago, you're not a better Christian today than you were five years ago. Now, what I'm not saying when I say that, and this is where the confusion is, Pastor Cliff is not saying or denying that you grow as a Christian. That's the promise of Scripture. So you are growing as a Christian. You are maturing as a Christian. You're being conformed into the image of Christ as a Christian. There is 
progressive sanctification going on. There's a trajectory of holiness moving in the right direction in your life. That is not synonymous with the phraseology, I am becoming a better person. So I talked about it a little bit last week to clarify. We'll do it again today and also next week. And I'll say it one more time, or I'll ask the question this way. All right, those of you who were here last Sunday at church, can you just raise your hand real quick? Because, okay, put your hands down. This question is for you, if you are a Christian. Are you a better Christian today than you were seven days ago? Last Sunday, and I can tell you emphatically, you are not, and neither am I. So if it's true that, no, I'm not a better person today than I was seven days ago, then why, would, why can you say you were a better person today than you were three years ago, or three weeks ago, or three months ago? That isn't how it works. So uh, that needed to be addressed. Another question that keeps coming up that even came up again this week, and that was Christians who are struggling with or asking the question, can I truly know that I am saved? Pastor Derek just prayed that in his prayer. I've talked about this and mentioned it many times. That is the promise of Scripture. If you are a truly born-again Christian, God's promise is that you can truly know that you are saved. And I think we've addressed enough Scriptures to settle that issue, but the fact that it just keeps coming up, I needed to say it again, and I'll read this key verse just to reiterate it. For those of you who are Christians, yet you're still struggling and you have doubts, here's a wonderful promise. You should probably memorize this verse. Maybe you'll write it down, and it's 1 John 5.13. 1 John 5.13 says this, These things I have written, this, this epistle I have written, 1 John, as John the Apostle was guided by and directed by the Holy Spirit of God. This is supernatural biblical truth coming from God himself. And I've written them down as I've been employed by Jesus himself and the Father and the Spirit to write it down. These things in his epistle, in the Bible, I have written to you who believe. There it is. Why did he write his epistle? Well, I wrote it to to Christians in the name of the Son of God. So that for the purpose of, there it is, it's a purpose statement. So that you may know that you have eternal life. There it is. It is emphatic. It is clear. It's a promise. Even in our so-called postmodern world where you can't know anything with uh, certainty, which is a lie. You can know the spiritual truth from God with certainty. And this is one of them. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So can you truly know that you are saved? If you're truly a Christian, you can. If you think you're a Christian, but you're self-deceived, you won't have that security. You won't have a true security. But if you're truly born again, you can have that security because that's a promise from God. And so, yes, a Christian can know with certainty that they truly are saved and belong to God really from two perspectives, from an objective perspective in light of what the Bible says right here, that's that's this, that's an objective perspective. You're reading the Bible, here's the truth stated, that matches up with my life, my desires, what I believe. Okay, that's objective assurance coupled by the beautiful ministry of the Holy Spirit to give you subjective certainty regarding your salvation, and that is Romans 8, where the Spirit of God who lives in you as a Christian is confirming deep within your heart, your soul, your mind, your conscience, in keeping with, in line, in parallel, in tandem with objective truth from the Bible deep within your soul to confirm that you truly belong to God. So as a Christian, you can have certainty of your salvation objectively based on what Scripture says and also subjectively based on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So as I testified last week, I am more certain than ever going on 40 years of salvation that I belong to God and that no one, as Jesus said, can snatch me out of his hand. I am eternally secure. And that is based on the ministry of the Holy Spirit as he uses the word of God in my life. And that can be true of you if you're a Christian as well. So let's uh, proceed. We had handouts today. If you didn't get one, uh, we've got some. If you would like one, you can just raise your hand and maybe we can get those distributed. Anybody that still needs a handout of the lesson of the day? So there's uh, a couple up here. Adam, anybody else that needs one? And Darren? And i got some handouts here if you still need some. Adam, okay, great. Uh, So get your Bible ready, get your handout ready, and let's go ahead and look at um, our next truth. And this is really part two in sanctification. Last week we talked about uh, what does the Bible have to say about sanctification? 
That can be a very confusing term, misunderstood term, for a lot of different reasons. Uh, so what we're trying to answer, again, is the question, are you growing? We're assuming you're a Christian. Are you growing? Are you growing in Christ? That's what we want to find. That's the inventory we're doing, an evaluation. And we're going to hit it hard and specific, particularly next week. Here are the things in the Bible that says should be true in your life, fruits that are manifest, that confirm that you are indeed growing in Jesus Christ. So that's the question. Are you growing as a Christian? And another way to ask that question is, are you becoming holier? It's synonymous. Are you becoming holier? You can actually ask that question and even answer that question. Are you becoming holier? Another way to ask it, same thing, is are you progressing in sanctification? To be growing means to becoming holy means to be progressing in sanctification. They're all synonymous. Am I progressing in my sanctification? Another way to ask it is, am I becoming more like Christ? That's also biblical terminology. Am I growing as a Christian? Am I becoming holier? Am I becoming sanctified? Or am I becoming more and more like Christ? Or you could ask it another way. Am I maturing spiritually? Maturity, key word in the New Testament, that also informs this idea of growing as a Christian. Am I maturing as a Christian? Or another way you can ask it is, am I increasing in spiritual understanding? That's one we don't talk about much, but I think that is key. Let me say that again. What does it mean to be uh, maturing and growing and becoming holier and becoming more sanctified with time and more like Christ? It is synonymous with this key phrase that Paul uses, is that you are increasing in spiritual understanding. Some translations say you are increasing in your spiritual knowledge. The key adjective there is spiritual before knowledge. It's not an academic Knowledge only. True spiritual knowledge. Increasing. It's ongoing, present tense. It's a continual reality in your life. Am I increasing in spiritual understanding? Notice it's not just knowledge, amassing data. It's understanding. There's a difference between understanding and amassing and intaking information, right? You can do things through rote memorization but not understand even what you're doing and there's no implications to follow up on as a result. Understanding is the light goes on in light of all the data you're taking in and you understand with wisdom how to apply it to your life. That's why the word understanding is so key. So are you increasing in spiritual understanding? Another way to ask the same question is are you increasing in patterns of obedience? Are you increasing in patterns of obedience? That's synonymous with everything I've just said. Well, am I becoming holier? Am I becoming sanctified in a progressive manner? Am I growing in Christ? Am I maturing? Am I, is my spiritual knowledge and understanding increasing? Well, is there a pattern of increased repetitive obedience in your life? And a decreasing pattern, at least in some areas, of disobedience. And another way to ask the same question is, after all, to be holy. And I said this last week. This is key. What does it mean to be holy? To be holy is to be obedient. That's where people get confused. What does it mean to be holy? To be holy is to be obedient. And that really puts the focus where it needs to be because then holiness, sanctification comes down to those moment-by-moment decisions in life, one after the other. I could be holy now and five minutes later not be holy. I could be holy now walking in obedience, walking in filled with the Spirit of God, and then I get home and the dog is torn up the front yard and the children are doing things they shouldn't be doing. I lose my temper and I sin. And I'm acting in sin. And I have the wrong attitude and the wrong words and the wrong actions. And yet 15 minutes ago, I was being obedient, walking in the Spirit. So just 15 minutes later separates me actually being holy versus now in my sin I am not holy. So to be holy means to be obedient. So before we go to the main topic, i got five points I just want to share with you today. Before we do that, I want to give you some encouraging good news to give us the proper balance here because we need to search the whole counsel of God on this issue. But we can't, the problem is you can't exhaust everything the Bible has to say on a topic in one sermon. I mean, I could. I could preach for five hours, but you would probably leave after an hour. 
But listen to this beautiful promise to the Christian. If you're not a Christian, this doesn't apply to you. If you are a a faker, this doesn't apply to you. If you're self-deceived and not truly born again, this doesn't apply to you. This is only those who know God personally and are truly saved and born again. 2 Corinthians 4.16. Paul says to the Corinthian Christians, the church that he started, he planted, he pastored for a year and a half, and boy, they were a motley crew, weren't they? Many of them. They had all kinds of compromise and carnality in their life and sinful patterns of behavior, and they grew up in a, just a total pagan, idolatrous, immoral world and setting uh, that spilled over into their Christian life. So they were pretty messed up Christians, but they were believers. Paul got mad at them a few times, shaking his finger throughout the epistle, threatening them. He's calling them uh, arrogant, puffed up, disobedient. I'm going to bring a rod, and I'm going to give you a spanking when I come. Nevertheless, he acknowledges they're believers. They believed in the gospel. They're, they're saved. And here's a word of encouragement from him, 2 Corinthians 4.16. Therefore, we do not lose heart as Christians in light of our challenges in life, our setbacks, our disappointments, our battle with sin, letdowns, all these other things. Therefore, we don't lose heart totally, but though our outer man is decaying, our outer man is dying. Okay, That includes the physical body. As you get older, you feel more pain, don't you? And your joints, ouch, that hurt. Out, you can't, getting out of bed is a major task, and you've got to get warmed up. So as you get older in life, you're dying, you're decaying. The outer man is dying. That's true in the Bible. That's Ecclesiastes chapter 12. The whole chapter is just explaining detail by detail. Your teeth are falling out. You're getting shorter. You're losing your sight. You're losing your hearing. That's what Paul's talking about. We die. We're in the death process. We started dying when we were born. That's just the reality of being a human. Our life is just a vapor. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying and we are in the process of physical death, yet our inner man, our inner man, what's that? That's the redeemed you. The moment you believed in the gospel and came to believe in Jesus Christ, you became a new creature. You were spiritually dead and then you were regenerated on the inside, in your soul, in your spirit. And you were made alive in Jesus Christ. That's what it's talking about, the inner man. So even though your outer body is decaying, yet the inner man on the inside is being renewed day by day. There's the promise. Am I being sanctified if you're a Christian? Yes. Well, Pastor Cliff said I'm not becoming a better person. This verse is not saying you're becoming a better person. It's saying something else in a different way. Our inner man, the redeemed humanity, the, re- the new person in Christ that truly is you, by the way, when that happened, the, spirit, the greatest change that happened in your life when you got saved was the Spirit of God literally came to live in you. So if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God living in you, and then Galatians 2 and 2 Corinthians say that it's actually Jesus who lives in you. Well, is it the Holy Spirit that lives in me or Jesus? The answer is yes. And then the Gospel of John says, not only is it Jesus who lives you in the Spirit, but the Father lives in you. So the Trinity lives in me? Yes. Just an amazing, astounding truth. But it's a reality. And the Spirit of God lives in me who will never leave me, despite my sin and compromise and uh, times of doubting the Spirit of God or the the uh, the Spirit of Christ lives in me And he never gives up. I will never leave you or forsake you. That's what Jesus meant when he said that. When you're saved, I will never leave you or forsake you because I will be literally living in you until I either return again or until you die and go immediately into the presence of God. So this inner, and it's called the inner man, Paul calls it. Paul also calls it the new man. The inner man, the new man. It's not a physical body. It's the new you. That Jesus redeemed, saved, regenerated. But it's, it's you, it's part of your personality and your identity and your consciousness. And it's made alive in Christ. And it's that new creature of 2 Corinthians 5. But it really is you. And that inner man or that inner person or that inner woman that got revived and regenerated in Jesus Christ is being renewed. It's an ongoing process. Is being renewed day by day. Awesome truth. That's what we call... Progressive sanctification. The problem is defining that, what it means practically, and understanding it and trying to wrap our brain around it. That's the challenge. And that's what we're trying to do here. Okay, so that's a wonderful promise. And then we, let me read this and then we'll jump in uh, because I want to 
remind us of these priority truths. There's so many scriptures I can read, but there are a few key ones that I think bring clarity to our understanding on this very difficult, complex topic, and that's Philippians 2. I read it last week. Just listen carefully. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, uh, 12 and 13 says, So then, my beloved, so then, fellow Christians, promise from God through the Apostle Paul. This is true. If you're a Christian, this is true of you regarding sanctification. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only as Pastor Paul, but now much more you obey in my absence while I'm gone. This is what I want you to do. This is a command. You need to work out your salvation. Whoa. Is that the same Paul that said that salvation is not by works? Well, it is. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Salvation is not by works. It's by grace. The same Paul says this. You, if you're a Christian, you need to work out your salvation. And you need to do it with fear and trembling. Reverence before God. Humility before God. That's what it means. So you work out your salvation. That means live a sanctified life. Live a holy life. Go in the right direction with God's help, God's grace, God's mercy. Humbly before him. It's the only way to do it. You do it totally in reference to God, who is holy and the only one that can empower you to do that. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So there's something you need to do, I need to do. We need to be proactive. We need to be deliberate. It's an imperative. It is a command. If we neglect this, it is disobedience. It is sin. It's passivity. We'll be held accountable for it. We won't grow if we undermine this. So it's something we need to do. Do we need to do anything to contribute to our sanctification? Well, this verse says so. Work out your salvation. But he doesn't stop there. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For the reason that you can do anything working towards holiness in your life is because God has already done something for you. He has enabled you. He has enabled me. So God, God's work comes first. He saved us. He empowered us. He gave the spirit. He gave us resources. Jesus died. This was all the foundation, the basis, and the enabling that allows us to work out our salvation. We can't do it apart from him. Or independent of him, we can only do it because of the work that he has done. And that's what he means here. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. God is at work in you. Well, I don't feel God at work in me. Well, don't depend on your emotions. Very misleading. Very deceptive. Very confusing. It's a fact. God is at work in you if you're a Christian. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. Wow. God is, I mean, you can just meditate on that the rest of the week. I am a Christian. I believe in Jesus. I've been born. And God is at work in me actively all the time, continually in a real supernatural way. That is awesome. Wow. You know what that will do to all the problems in your life? It will minimize them and swallow them out. Wow, my job situation really stinks. And all my colleagues that I have to work with, boy, they're trying. Oh, my family life ain't as good as it should be or I want it to be. Oh, my living situation. Oh, my income. You can go on and whine all you want. And then as a Christian, here's this wonderful promise. God is at work in you. And God is at work in you both to do what? To will and to work for his good pleasure. God's not only going to work in you, he's going to work according to his will. He's gonna, he has an agenda. God has an agenda that he wants to work out in your life. And according to this, it says he's going to do it. Whether we cooperate or not, whether we understand it or not, that's Hebrews 12. That's where those spiritual spankings come in. Called the chastening of God. For the, those whom I love, I chasten and discipline. And you are going to grow in holiness, whether you like it or not. That's the way we talk to our kids. To will, so God is at work in you. Working along with you, we are co-laborers in our sanctification, progression, and holiness. And God has an agenda. His agenda is perfect. It's revealed in the Word of God right here in Scripture. So it's objective. We can actually know what His will is for our life. That's why all these phrases in the New Testament say, This is the will of God for you. Wow, thank you for stating it so clearly in 1 Thessalonians 4. This is the will of God for you, Christian, your sanctification, your holiness, that you not be engaged in sexual immorality like pagans. 1 Thessalonians 5, this is the will of God for you, for those who are in Christ Jesus, that you are always thankful to God. And when you're not thankful and you're a whiner and a complainer, you're out of the will of God, you're not being holy. So that's what he's talking about here. God is at work in you. You need to co-labor with God who's working in you primarily through the Spirit of God and objective truth from the Bible, both to will and to work for God's 
good pleasure. And the ultimate goal for all of us is that God is working in us, sanctifying us, growing us, because he's conforming us into that perfect image of Jesus Christ because there's going to be a spiritual eternal wedding someday between Jesus and his beloved church where we will all be perfect in glory. Hard to imagine, but that's where it's going, and it's guaranteed. So with that great, fantastic verse, let's go on to our lesson of the day, taking spiritual inventory, sanctification, and before we start going through and looking objectively at Scripture, where we have all these very tangible signs to look at, gauging whether we are growing or not, I thought it was important to first stop and, okay, wait a minute. Before we engage in a wrestling match, and that's what sanctification is. That's what growing in holiness is. It is a wrestling match, and it's internal. It's deep within the soul. It's in your mind. I don't know if there's any Christians here, but there are probably a lot of them who are frustrated, or I'll just ask it this way. Okay, Christian. Do you ever get frustrated with your own sin? Do you get discouraged by your own sin? Your repeated sin? Oh man, I thought I, I wanted to never do that again. And I did it again. And I know the consequences of doing it again. I know the damage it does in the relationships I have when I do that. I know that the fellowship uh, that it wreaks between me and my God when that happens, and the guilt that comes with it, and how it undermines my progress in the Christian life. And you get frustrated with your sin, especially repeated sin. Does that ever happen to you? If you think that way, if you get frustrated and depressed by your own sin over and over again, that is actually a good thing. That could be a good sign. It could be a healthy sign that you have a sensitive conscience, that you're aware of the sin in your life. I would actually be concerned if you're a professing Christian and I asked that question, so are you ever frustrated or concerned about the sin in your life? And you're like, uh, yeah, kind of. Like, wow. I don't think you understand what's going on here or the priorities in the Christian life of sanctification. So that could be a good sign. So before we pursue these commands, okay, just Pastor Cliff, tell me what I need to do to keep growing in holiness. Give me the list of the nine things I need to do. Do this, do this, do this, and then refrain from that and don't do that and don't do that and don't do that and don't do that. Well, I'm not going to do that. Why? Because Colossians 2 says, if we do do that, you know what you are? You're a legalist. It's shallow, it's superficial, it's external, it's showy, it's not really changing anything, it doesn't please God, it makes you and me arrogant, condescending, looking down on others, it's the easy way out. That's not living the Christian life, a list of do's and don'ts. Although there are a bunch of do's and don'ts in the Bible, but they have to be put in the proper context. So we want to be careful and guard against that, so... I want to talk about the spiritual battle that we need to be aware of first before we engage. And there, are, there is going to be a list of do's and don'ts that I want to lay out next week. And they come right from the Bible. But I want us all to be prepared before we get in the, the ring and start the wrestling match as we try to struggle our way. And it is a struggle. It's an arduous struggle to grow in holiness in this life. It is not easy. It's a battle. Paul uses the word battle or war. Literally war. And he also uses the word struggle. But if we're going to get engaged in a struggle of holiness, then we need to know the roadblocks, the stumbling blocks, uh, the hurdles in our way, and even the enemies in our way that are trying to prohibit us from growing in holiness. And that's what I'm doing right here. It's, are you growing as a Christian? And then the subtitle is, roadblocks to growth. If you are not specifically aware of the ongoing universal roadblocks, impediments, and even enemies in your life as a Christian that have one goal of seeking to undermine your holiness, you are not going to make a lot of progress in your Christian life and sanctification. you got to go to battle prepared, right? You're a boxer and you've got a match in six months. What are you doing? You're, You're watching film of the other guy. What are his weaknesses? What are his strengths? You're learning your enemy. You need to do that. That's when you're dealing with an enemy. But sometimes uh, roadblocks and impediments to sanctification and holiness aren't enemies necessarily in life. It could just be something neutral. But you still got to be aware of it. It's like you're going to go camping or backpacking in some high dangerous mountain somewhere. You don't just go cold turkey willy-nilly. You could end up dying, getting too close to the edge and loose rock, and it takes you down and die. That's happened recently a couple of times. It's been in the news, people. 
They're operating in ignorance. They didn't take precautions. They were not informed. They were going out ignorant. They were not prepared. They didn't do their homework. And you become vulnerable. So that's what this is. I'm trying to prepare us all. Know who your enemies are. Know where the impediments are. Know where the roadblocks are. Know which direction not to go to. Know which vulnerabilities uh, to consider when you're trying to accomplish a goal. So here they are. So there are five roadblocks, five impediments to spiritual growth that you need to know, believe in, master well, and be aware of. And that's going to help you in this wrestling match of pursuing holiness in your life. So let's go ahead and look at uh, these five impediments or roadblocks to growth or holiness. And before I read number one, just there's the, at the title there, uh, just a summary sentence that I thought would help us. A key to Christian growth that I've actually defined seven different ways earlier. Christian growth. A key to Christian growth, meaning increasing spiritual knowledge that leads to repeated patterns of obedient behavior. That's a synonym for Christian growth. Increasing spiritual knowledge that leads to repeated patterns of obedient behavior. A key to Christian growth is to first be aware of ongoing impediments that can undermine your progress in holiness. And here they are. Number one, you need to be aware of, Christian, of indwelling sin. Indwelling sin that you inherited at birth. Hopefully, if you're a Christian, you already knew that reality. If you didn't already know that as a Christian, this might be one of the biggest truths you need to add to your arsenal of information in your worldview as a Christian. It affects everything. According to the Bible, indwelling sin that you inherited at birth. It is a roadblock. It is an impediment. It is an enemy. It is inescapable. It will be with you and with me the rest of our life. You can't escape it. Indwelling sin. Psalm 51, verse 5. This is King David. This is 1,000 B.C. He wrote this psalm after his just egregious compromises of sin, of sexual immorality, adultery, murder, lying, and yet he's the representative king of Israel, God's shepherd, and he's going on with this compromise of sin, multifaceted compromise of sin, for nine months. Who knows how long it went on? It went on for months, this charade of sin. He got caught. He got exposed. He got convicted. He finally repented. He wrote this psalm in repentance, Psalm 51. He's basically confessing his sin the whole time. And he makes this statement, Psalm 51, verse 5. I wish we could read it in Hebrew, but here's an English translation. Behold, this is important. This is divine information. Get, take note of this reality. I was brought forth in iniquity, David said. I was born a sinner. I didn't become a sinner. Apparently there are some religions here in America that say at eight, age 8 you become a sinner. At age 8 you become a sinner. I'm thinking that person who made up that rule never had kids. <laughs> Behold, I was brought forth. I was born in iniquity. And so when do you become a sinner? Well, at birth. Well, that's not the correct answer. Because he goes even further. He says, uh, and in sin my mother conceived me. And literally it says, I was conceived in sin. Or in other words, at conception I became a sinner. That's literally what it says. When did David become a sinner? At eight years old? No. The terrible twos? No. The day he was born? No. The day he was conceived, when the egg was fertilized and God made a person. And because it was a sinful dad and a sinful mom, he inherited a sin nature all the way back from Adam. That's Romans chapter 5. So are you a sinner? Yes. Am I a sinner? Yes. When did I become a sinner? At conception. At conception. That's consistently the biblical truth. This is true for everybody. It doesn't matter if you believe in God. This is true of you. If you're an atheist, you don't even believe in sin. It doesn't matter. This is true of you. You were a sinner and you were conceived as a sinner. You have sin nature. Doesn't matter what your religion is, your affiliation, your worldview, your ideology, you were born in sin and you were conceived in sin. And as a result of being conceived in sin and born of sin, you were born spiritually stillborn, separated from God, a child of wrath, an enemy of God, hostile to the Creator, and it manifests itself early on as you grow. Every one of us has this evil, wicked 
sin nature that we inherited, and actually it's the, it comes with the sentence of death, even at birth and conception. So that Paul can say, before you got saved, before you were a Christian, you were spiritually dead. Completely unresponsive to any spiritual stimulus that God threw your way. You were spiritually dead. You needed, how does a dead person come back to life? Well, they don't do it on their own. It had to be completely the work of God. The sovereign, supernatural, divine, gracious work of God to intervene in your dead life and my dead life. And that's what he does at regeneration, so that we might be born again. So, we inherit the sin nature. Uh, unfortunately, when we get saved and born again, we, we retain some kind of a sin nature, however you want to define it. But when you became, so I became a Christian at age 19. When I got saved at age 19 and I believed in Jesus and the Spirit of God came and took up residence literally in, in me somehow, supernaturally, and I was born again, I became a new creation. There was, now I have a new inner man. Yet my sin nature was not eradicated. So now I'm living with that same sin nature, although it's not totally the same, but the sin nature is there. And I have the Spirit of God living in me. So I have the sin living in me and the Spirit of God living in me. Now it's not like, okay, I got a white dog over here and a black dog over here. And they're both whispering to each ear, and it's 50-50. Now that is not the imagery. And it's also not... Um, my body is evil and my spirit is spiritual. That's a false dichotomy as well. That's a pagan worldview. That is not what the Bible teaches. But the fact is, we have a sin nature that stays with us. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 10 is key to this, where John the Apostle is talking to Christians and he just reminds them, uh, don't be deceived. You're a sinful person. I'm a sinful person. You have a sin nature. I have a sin nature. You commit acts of sin. I commit acts of sin. God doesn't want us to commit acts of sins, but too bad we commit sin and we need to confess it. And repent of it and not do it. Challenging verse, 1 John 1, 8 through 10. John says, if we as Christians say that we have no sin, sin being used as a noun here, emphasizing sin nature, literally. There are people apparently in John's church in Ephesus at this time who were going around saying, oh, I don't, have any, I don't have a sin nature. In other words, what were they saying? Oh, I'm a good person. You ever heard that before? I was born good or I was born neutral. And John's saying, oh, whoa, 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 no, that ain't right. If we as professing Christians say that we have no sin or no sin nature, then we deceive ourselves. A person that says that is deceived. Furthermore, the truth is not in that person. They're a liar. Anybody that says that, oh, I don't have a sin nature, I have a, I'm a good person, they're, they're lying. I know people like this personally. Friends that I have. Family members who believe this ideology that comes out of their mouth all the time. I'm not a sinner. I'm a good person. Everybody's a good person. They're lying, and they don't realize, And if they don't realize they're lying, that's why he says deceived. So, it's, not in, it's not intentional. They're not intentionally lying. They actually believe it. They've been duped. So you can't deny your sin nature. It's there even as a Christian. We deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Uh, and because that's true, all Christians have a sin nature, and God hates that, and he must punish sin. And there's no appeasing God's wrath and hatred towards sin without death and shed blood. So as a Christian, you deserve eternal death. Somebody needs to die for your sin, and praise God that Jesus died 2,000 years ago for me. That's the good news of the gospel. Somebody, well, somebody did die. Jesus died for me, and that's as a result. If we confess our sins then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that's the promise to a Christian. You will continue to sin. You have a sin nature. And yet you can always go to God who is gracious and Jesus, the mediator and the Holy Spirit, and ask him continually for the forgiveness of your sin. And he will just continue to pour out forgiveness of sin because of his death on the cross. And continue to pour out. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. As a Christian, your sin uh, can't outdo the grace of God. And the older you get as a Christian... Hopefully, the more and more you realize what a horrible, terrible, sinful person you are. Hopefully, your view of yourself exponentially grows of how offensive you are to a holy God, and then your attitude towards God is, oh, thank you, Lord, for being so gracious towards me. Amen. Great promise of forgiveness there. And then he goes on to verse 10. And if we say we have not sinned, so now he goes from using a noun to a verb with respect to sin, the first people were denying a sin nature, and now it's, there are people apparently professing to be Christians who are saying, well, I don't do acts of sin. Currently, present tense. 
in the, it's actually a perfect tense verb, meaning that at some point in the past in their Christian life, they believed they got to elevated to a spiritual level where, yeah, I used to be a sinner, but then I got elevated on a high plane of spirituality where I actually began, got to a point where I wasn't sinning anymore. That's what he's addressing here. He's saying there are professing Christians or even some real Christians who actually believe that they reach a higher plane of spirituality to the point that they don't sin anymore. That is true. That's Wesleyan theology. That's Nazarene theology, as plain as can be. I know a lot of Christians who actually believe this. Yeah, I used to sin, and I was sinful, and I was immature, and now I've arrived, and I haven't sinned in seven years. And there are people who will say that. Some of you are laughing. It is laughable. It's sad. I haven't sinned in 13 years. I've heard I haven't sinned in 13 years. I've heard I haven't sinned in seven years. I was interviewing somebody for membership, not at this church, but at a previous church. In their testimony, they were telling me they hadn't sinned in two and a half years. Whoa, whoa, let's talk. How did you do that? What's your secret? Can you give me some tips here? And John says, no, if there's any professing Christians going around saying that they have not sinned, then we make God a liar. Wow. If you're saying you've got to a point where you don't commit sin anymore, you make God a liar, why is that? Because God has announced that first and foremost, among being creator and other things, he's a savior and a redeemer and a sustainer of sinners. That's why he sent Jesus to the cross. There will never be perfection in this life. You will always be a sinner, and if you deny that, you're denying God himself and what he's declared. Uh, so we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. See, John is pers- he's saying us. There are Christians who will say this, and there are true Christians who believe this, and you need to gently, patiently take the child of God into the Scripture to show them, no, here's what the Bible says. Here's the diagnosis. You are not sinless. You haven't reached a state of perfection. It's called perfectionism. No, that is not true. You don't want to be living a lie. And hopefully you woo them back. Um, so you need to understand indwelling sin. You have it in you, whether you're a Christian or not, and you inherited it at birth. So now let's look at Romans 7, 15 through 25. This is probably, I think if I was going to do one talk on sanctification, I'd spend most of my time on Romans chapter 7, 15 through 25. It is so important. And if you're a Christian, your nose should be in Romans chapter 7, well, I mean the whole chapter, but chapter 7, 15 through 25, 14 through 25, on a regular, ongoing basis. For a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, it'll bring you out of the valley of discouragement and depression when you feel overwhelmed by your sin and your patterns of sinful behavior. Uh, But also what it will do is it will bring you down from the mountaintop if you think too highly of yourself. As Paul said, don't do that in Romans 12. Evaluate yourself, be objective, but don't think too highly of yourself. Look at Romans 7, and instead of all the I's that Paul uses, personal pronoun, first person, personal pronoun, I, 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 I. That's key to this passage. The Apostle Paul is writing the book of Romans He's been a Christian maybe 20 years. He's been on the mission field. He's an apostle. He's at the the apex or the peak of his spiritual maturity at this point. He's getting divine revelation from God. Like I said, he's been a believer for 20-plus years at this point. And then he writes basically an autobiography describing himself, saying, I, I, I. And he's, he's assessing himself with the help of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is actually the one who's the author behind this. Because only God's infinite, omniscient Holy Spirit could give this diagnosis of the inner recesses of a human soul, consciousness, and mind. This is one of the most profound pieces of written literature in human history. It's absolutely authoritative and divine in terms of its explanation and explication of human psychology, human anthropology, the deepest inner recesses of our heart, mind, soul, and everything about us with respect to psychology and being a person and who we are, spirit, uh, soul, everything that the Bible has to say about the inner man, even the heart. Here's the, the closest we can get to an analysis and diagnosis, and it is very complicated. It is very confusing. That's why you can't just go on a first blush. Because it's almost Paul struggling to communicate one of the greatest spiritual truths in the history of humanity. And he's struggling because he can only use human language to communicate infinite truth that comes from the Holy God. Not only is he curbed by his limited vocabulary that he can use to share with others, 
we are also limited by our finitude to understand what's going on here. But we can, at least the main truths. So just let me read it, and you can follow along. Um, Romans 7, 15 through 25, primarily the ESV, the English Standard Version, with some phrases from the New American Standard that I plagiarized and stuck in there. And then there's, as always, there's some living McManus translation additions as well. Uh, but here's what Paul says as he's evaluating himself, which is true of every Christian. For I do not understand my own actions. So, I mean, you can just put your name in there if you're a Christian. I do. Okay, I am pastor. I'm just Cliff. Cliff does not understand his own actions. That is so true. Can I get an amen? Amen, Pastor Cliff. You don't understand your actions. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want to do. That's the battle, the internal battle of a Christian. He's talking about, I, I do not do what I want to do means, I know that what God has commanded me to do in terms of obedience, and at times I don't do it, and I know I don't do it. That's frustrating. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Strong word. What's that? Sin. And Paul, of all people, he knows what the standard is. As a Pharisee and a, a master Pharisee of the Pharisees, man, he knows Moses' law inside and out. And as an apostle, and having been caught up to the third heaven and seeing heavenly truth and heavenly things that no one has seen, he's got he's the highest accountability by virtue of his knowledge base of what God expects. This You talk about frustrating. Paul knows what sin is. He knows what to avoid. He knows what breaks the heart of Jesus, and yet he does it. The Apostle Paul, he does. Every time I read this passage, I always stop and think, now what was Paul, what sins was he committing? It was so egregious and disgusting and an affront to his conscience. I have no idea. I don't even know if we'll ever find out when we get to heaven. I would imagine that in heaven, Paul doesn't want to talk about his sin. It's like, how'd you get in here? <laughs> Talking about sin. You don't belong here. So the truth, um, for I do not do what I want to do. That's obedience. But I do the very thing that I hate. That's disobedience and sin. And now if I do what I do not want, then I agree with the law that is good. The law of God. If I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that is good. So he understands the law of God, the Mosaic law, God's requirements, God's commands. And in his mind, uh, his redeemed self, he agrees with God. He is in sync with God. God, I believe in you. I agree with your truth. I want to obey that truth. Who doesn't think like that? An unbeliever does not believe like that. Somebody who's not regenerate, they don't think that way deep within their soul. They hate God. And if they're an atheist, they say they don't believe in God, and at the same time, they hate God. That's the irony. And it doesn't matter if you're a religious unbeliever, you hate God deep within your soul. That's God's judgment. Because you got your own man-made religion you agree with that you could say that you worship God, but not the true God. When you hear stuff out of the Bible about the true God, you don't like it. As a matter of fact, deep within your soul, you hate it. This is God's diagnosis. But Paul isn't like that. He says, I agree with God. I hate my sin and I agree with God. So if that resonates with you today, I know the right thing to do. I know the things I shouldn't be doing. I know the law of God and his requirements. And I want to do those. And I agree with God. Then that's confirmation that you belong to God. You're thinking the right way. You're a, that's how a Christian thinks. That's good. I agree with the law that it is good, verse 17. So now it is no longer I who do it. Whoa, that sounds controversial. Sounds like he's skirting responsibility, doesn't it? So it is no longer I who do it. Well, then whose fault is it, Paul? Who's he going to blame it on? Well, he goes further. So now it is no longer I. Well, which I? Well, it's the I in verse 16, the I that agreed with God's law. So the I, the inner me, that agrees with God's law about what is right is not the one who does the sin. It's another I. You mean Paul has another I? Yes, he does. He has unredeemed humanity about him. There's a residue of sin 
left behind. That's true of all of us. That's Galatians 2. I am crucified with Christ. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Wait a minute. In that verse, there's two eyes. One is dead, one's alive. If you're a Christian, you have two eyes. You mean I have a split personality? Thank you for telling me. People have said that. No. But somehow in the mystery, because Christ invades your life, the Spirit of God lives in you. Christ lives in me, says Paul in Galatians 2. So I was crucified, the old me, the old I, the unregenerate I, the sinful I, yet a responsible I, a creature of God made in his image, but sinful, wicked, evil enemy of God I that needed to repent, that was a rebel that was under the wrath of God. That I, the old I, the old man, says Paul, it's still there. And it's part of your consciousness. It's part of your personality. It's part of your identity. It's unredeemed humanity. That's just the best way to say it. Your unredeemed humanity. It's not the body. Not, he's not talking about your physical body. My body is evil. My spirit is holy and good. Can't wait to get out of this body and be without a body. That's Hinduism. That's Plato. That's paganism. That is not true. The body is neutral in this life, and the body is good in the next life of the resurrection body of Christ. That's the goal of humanity, is resurrection man, like Christ right now. Spirit and body together, one whole man, one unity. That's the Christian view. Not dualism, it's a unity. So we're not trying to escape the body. But there's this unredeemed humanity that's still a part of me. It was me, it's still a part of me, and yet now, in addition to the old unredeemed man, I have Christ living in me through the Spirit, and there's a new me a new creation, a new I. And somehow there's a war between the two, but they're both me. And that war is in my mind and in my heart, my spirit, my and I feel it. That's what Paul, Paul is very frustrated here. So no longer it is I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So that's the problem. He still has sin living in me. I call it a sin nature here. Some people say, well, we don't have a sin nature anymore. Well, prove it from Scripture. Nowhere does the Bible say you don't have a sin nature anymore. Something changed at salvation, true. And the word nature is not in this passage. But sin as an entity lives in Paul continually. It's not leaving. So that's true of all of us. We've got sin living in us. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. So there's some autobiography of Paul. And that's, this is our autobiography. We could say all these things. Sin lives in me. Uh, there's nothing good that lives in me or dwells in me. That is, in my flesh, the old me, the unredeemed me. When he says flesh, he doesn't mean body. He doesn't mean physical body. He means the old, unredeemed self. Sarkos, flesh, means different things metaphorically. He's not talking about the body. Uh, but it can't be disassociated from the body because the only way the old, unregenerate man that lives in you can manifest its sinful actions is through our body, right? It's the only way. This is heavy stuff. For I know, see, he knows. A Christian doesn't know this. He is redeemed, he knows. He has the mind of Christ, he said in 1 Corinthians 2. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That's an accurate assessment, a good biblical anthropology. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right. I underlined it in bold because that is not true of a Christian. This is one good test to find out where you're at with Jesus and if you're growing spiritually. Do you have a desire to do what is right? And what is right is in keeping with God has revealed in his word. Obedience to God. Do you desire that? Yes, I do. I do all kinds. I've been doing counseling for 30 years. And the counselee in the chair who's a Christian always has a desire to do the right thing. The reason they're there in counseling is because they don't. Or they do for a while and then they mess up. This is the battle. They have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. What does he mean by that? Ability perfectly to do it right all the time. That is true of nobody in here. That statement is true of all of us. Nobody here is perfect. If you say that you're perfect and you have the ability to carry out obedience all of the time, Paul, John just said you're a liar. Now, there is ability to be obedient, and that's the indwelling Holy Spirit, but that's not what he's talking about here. Verse 19, for I do not... For I do not do the good I want, that's obedience, but I actually do the evil I do not want uh, is what I keep on doing, so I, I keep sinning. Verse 20, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He say, says that twice. Why do I keep sinning? Because you have sin living in you. The problem, Christian, so here's the key, or summary. Our problem isn't that we commit acts of sin. 
In other words, I am not a sinner because I commit individual acts of sins. That is not the problem. I'm not a sinner because I commit individual acts of sin. The problem is, is that I have sin living in me all the time, and it's always there, and it ain't leaving. And that is why I commit acts of sin. Why am I a sinner? Because I have a sin nature, not because I commit acts of sin. So you can try and be disciplined. Okay, I'm not going to sin for the next 23 days. And you got your journal. Check, check, check. Well, you're self-deceived because you have a sin nature living in you that is a complete affront to a holy God. And every single one of us should be confessing our sin nature to God every day. Father, thank you that you find me pleasing in Jesus Christ despite the sin that lives in me all the time. That is an offense to you as a holy God. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, and death of Jesus Christ on my behalf. And the fact from heaven, your diagnosis of me is you call me a holy one, hagios, a saint, despite that despicable reality. That's what Paul's talking about here. So I'll just con- conclude what he says here. Um, verse 21, so I find it to be a law. There is a spiritual law or reality going on here that when I want to do right or obedience, evil lies close at hand. Hence the internal civil war. Every time, Christian, you wake up and roll out of bed, get ready for civil war. And where's it at? In your soul, in your mind. With every decision you're confronted with every single day. Verse 22, for I delight, I love the law of God, biblical truth. That is not true of a Christian. In the inner man, in the deepest inner recesses of my soul, I love God and his truth, verse 23, but I see in my members, uh, acting out in my body parts and out of my mouth, members of my tongue, I say evil, wicked things. It's the only way that sin on the inside can manifest itself is through our body parts. I see in my members another law, waging war. Against the law of my mind, because in his mind he agrees with God's law. And making me captive to the law of sin. Why am I captive? Because Paul's going to be like this until he dies and goes to glory. He's not going to escape it. And it's true. We, in one respect, have we been set free and liberated by Jesus? Yes. And yet salvation hasn't been totally accomplished yet because we still have sin to deal with in our life. Along with the fallen world and everything else. Since, so in, this, in a degree we are still captive. God has set us free from the penalty of sin at salvation. God has given us new power over sin at salvation. God has not set us free from the presence of sin at salvation that is still in our heart. So he says this, verse 24, wretched man that I am. Every Christian should be able to say that. Looking at yourself honestly, wretched person that I am, wretched woman that I am, wretched child that I am, wretched man that I am before a holy God. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, there's an answer. It's through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself will serve the law. So in the meantime, until I'm delivered at the resurrection, which is in chapter 8, the next chapter, through the power of the Holy Spirit, it's coming. That's the good news. But in the meantime, verse 25 is true of every Christian. In the meantime, so then I myself now serve the law of God with my mind. I know what is true and I want to do it. I have the desire to please God. But the reality is, with my flesh... My unredeemed humanity, it keeps creeping in. I serve the law of sin that is still deep within my soul. Wow, thanks, Paul. And then I just put the verses there in Galatians 5, 16 and 17, which is a two-sentence summary of everything Paul just said in Romans 7, 14 through 25. So there's, I guess you could say good news and bad news there. I think it's just Paul's being realistic for the Christian to help us. This is very helpful information. So next week we'll look at um, two through five impediments, but this is, this is the most important one. Who's your greatest enemy in life? You are. As a parent, you know what you should be teaching your kids? Who's the greatest enemy in the world? Uh, Hollywood. No, wrong answer. The public school system. Uh, wrong answer. The devil. Uh, wrong answer. Television. Uh, wrong answer. The world, uh, wrong answer. Keep going. Who's the greatest enemy? Who's your greatest? It's you. Because you can't escape from you. You can lock your kids in your room. They haven't escaped. They have sin living in them. And who knows what's going on right up here. And you can't see it. And they're not telling you. 
Hence, the importance of Romans 7. With that, let's go to the Father in prayer. Father, we do thank you for today, the opportunity to worship with the saints, the reminder of Lord's Day. Every Lord's Day is Resurrection Sunday, as we have the opportunity to celebrate the risen Lord, our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love for sinners and coming into this world 2,000 years ago to live a perfect life that pleased the Father so that you ended up on a cross of your own volition to absorb the Father's wrath on behalf of sinners as the Lamb of God, buried and rose again victoriously the third day, and that you reign on high as the great high priest, interceding on behalf of sinners and even pursuing sinners that aren't saved yet, that they might come to know you and your grace and forgiveness so that they might be adopted into your family. Thank you for the ongoing loving grace from you. We commit it all to you. We pray in Christ's name. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.